Amen and good morning. Today, we have been spending a number of weeks talking a lot about what it means to be the church, what, how we can start to reimagine and re-understand our role in the world, um, all with the purpose, of course, to become the church that God wants us to be. Um, and we have spent some time looking at some theory, um, some church history, some lessons to be learned from actual church in the world. Today, we're going to dive into Scripture um, in, more, in a greater detail than we have perhaps in the, in the weeks past. And today, we're looking at um, Luke, it's chapter 4, it's verses 16 through 21. It reads, When he came to Nazareth, he being Jesus, of course, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight of the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is the word of the Lord. So this is uh, right at the beginning of Luke. If you know the book of Luke, you know the first few chapters of the Christmas story. And then in chapter 3, we start to hear from Luke about Jesus' ministry. Uh, We get his baptism, which we get in the other synoptic gospels. We read about the temptation of Jesus. He gets thrust into the desert and tested uh, by Satan himself. And then there's a short little paragraph where Luke tells us about Jesus' teaching in Galilee. And we're told that he went throughout all through Galilee after being in, in the desert with a temptation. He's thrust into his public ministry. Um, and we're told that he went into all the area's synagogues and were teaching. Right? And that's, that's what we find here as we read this today. It's Jesus on the Sabbath coming to the synagogue, as it says is his custom. Now, the synagogue um, had a particular service, much like we have traditional orders of service. Uh, Really, it doesn't matter what church you walk into. The way in which we do church is very similar from church to church, with a few exceptions. And one of the first things that you would have done on a Sabbath, Sabbath is which day of the week? Saturday for the Jews, right? We, we made it Sunday because of the resurrection. So the Christian church meets on Saturday, or Sunday, but the Jewish church meets on Sunday. So the Sabbath is Saturday for them. Um, and the first thing they would have done, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, will be no surprise, it is to repeat the Shema. So the service would have opened with the rep- repetition, the recitation of the Shema. They would have gone on then to prayers, and there would have been, they had a, several different sets of prayers. The chances are that they would have recited and prayed one of those, much like we pray uh, in unison as we do our call to worship and up at other times, um, or even just said the Lord's Prayer. So they had some formal prayers they would have said, um, and then would have come a reading from the law, and the law is the Torah. So it's the first five books of the Bible. There were three sections to the, the Hebrew Bible, and still are, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So the first reading would have come from the Torah, and there would have been several likely. And then the second reading would have come from the prophets. 
And that's what we see Jesus reading. And it was often the case that different men would read the two sections. From time to time, one man would read both of them. And it should be said and acknowledged that in this time and place, it was always men who would get up and teach. Women were invited and expected and participated in the life of the synagogue, uh, but they were not teachers. Um, And then following the reading of the prophets, whoever was giving the teaching that day would stand up and give the teaching. And it was usually relatively brief. So you're used to pastors talking 20, 30, 40 minutes, um, but that was not the case back then. They would be usually relatively terse, short. Was it as short as Jesus's one, one-liner here? I don't, I don't know, not, probably not usually, but it was often short. And then there would come a benediction. But we read here that uh, Jesus, after coming to Nazareth and going to the synagogue, which was his custom, which tells us that he's a pious man, that he is, uh, it was his routine to be in the synagogue. It tells us he stands up you would stand to read. And in these synagogue meetings, you didn't have to be a rabbi to teach. Anyone could teach. And it was thought that God taught everyone through their lives and that you could come to the synagogue on a Sabbath and anyone who was living in the, in the right life could give up and give a teaching. And in order for that to happen, there needed to be 10 men present. That was quorum for synagogue to happen. And as long as there were at least 10 men to sort of give some checks and balances to what was being said, anyone could come teach. So it's unclear here, in Luke's gospel at least, as to whether or not Jesus is recognized as a rabbi. We're told he's gone around teaching, and we certainly know that he will soon be recognized as a rabbi, but it's not exactly clear yet if he's standing up as a rabbi or if he's standing up just as one of the men that were present to give a teaching. But he stands up. He is given the scroll from Isaiah, and we're told that he goes and he finds his spot that he wants to teach from. There's some debate as to whether or not, much like we have a liturgical calendar, we don't follow the liturgy or the liturgical calendar here, but there is something out there in the, in the world of Christianity, and it's a three-year cycle, and every week there's a number of scriptures that are given, and a lot of times, if you sort of listen to other churches' teachings, or you watch what's going on, or you even look at sermon titles, a lot of times you'll see that a lot of pastors around the area, or even the world, are teaching on the same topics, a lot of times that's because they're all using that liturgical calendar and they're using the scriptures for that week and their lessons are given on that. So we as Christians retain sort of that and there's some debate as to whether or not the scripture that Jesus stands up and teaches is part of that calendar so it was scheduled and planned for that day or whether or not he went and picked it. I'm inclined to say he went and picked it. It is likely that if it was part of the calendar, it would have just been handed to him. Instead, he gets handed a scroll, and he's, we're told he went and found what it was that he wants to say. So my guess is it's the latter, but we don't have to be dogmatic either way. The scripture of the day comes from Isaiah, and it's primarily from Isaiah 61. There is one line here that actually comes from Isaiah 58. And so, again, it raises a little bit of questions. How did Jesus actually read this? Did he read it just like this? Or did he read a little bit from 58 and some from 61, and then Luke has sort of put them together in his telling? Again, at the end of the day, what it means for us is not, uh, that distinction isn't necessarily important, but we know that Jesus read from both chapters this quote. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now, these two chapters, 58 and 61, one of the reasons that it makes sense that he would read them together is that they were being understood together at this time as messianic prophecies. That Isaiah, we've, we've mentioned before that the book of Isaiah as we have it is actually three different books that have been put together. There's first Isaiah, which was the man we know as Isaiah. He's also known as Isaiah of Jerusalem. And he wrote the first 30 to 40 chapters of it. I believe it breaks in 39, if I remember correctly. And that was written before the Babylonian exile, as Babylon is starting to press in on Israel, and they fear the worst, and they fear the, the judgment of God upon them. And so it very much is a call to renewal and a warning of the impending trouble. Second Isaiah is written during the exile from Babylon by presumably one of first Isaiah's students and someone that comes out of the school of Isaiah. And then third Isaiah, which this is from, is written as they've come back in the post-exilic period. And so those that were sent into exile into Babylon have now returned. And as they come back, there's all sorts of problems, as you can imagine. The, the, the temple has been destroyed, so they're coming back to a land where the center of their religious and social life is gone. Uh, it will not be rebuilt until about 350, and this is 520-ish. So we're talking almost 200 years until there will be a temple again. Uh, so the, the, the Jews are struggling to find their identity, struggling to find exactly how to live in, back in their land, but unlike they had ever known before. And they also are having a lot of problems because there are those that were taken, but there are also those that remained. And so those two groups are now back together, and they're, they're trying to struggle to figure out how they're going to relate to each other. And so third Isaiah is, is full of hope, full of uh, remembrance of the promise of God, the fact that they're back. It, it does have a lot of warnings to do right, to live right, to live justly. Um, but he's known as Isaiah of the Restoration because it is third Isaiah that deals heavily with the restoration of the nation of Israel after the exile. Does that make sense? And so out of that time and place and, and that teaching, these two chapters of Isaiah were put together and were thought to and being interpreted as a prophecy, a telling of what was going to happen when the Messiah came. And who was Messiah? Not the man Jesus we know, but who was Messiah generally? What was that role? I'm sorry? A savior. Um, yes, and it, it, he was. He was. He was to be the coming king that was going to restore Israel to his right place in the world. Uh, and so by the first century, obviously, we have the Roman Empire ruling the land. And so my, Messiah was expected to be the king that was going to come, overthrow Israel, and reestablish, or I'm sorry, overthrow Rome and reestablish Israel as a power in the world. It was not, and it was a surprise that Messiah was actually God himself. That was not something that was expected. But these two chapters were talking about and understood to be talking about what was going to happen as Messiah came. And so we get these conversations, or this conversation, this section that Jesus has read, that everyone, remember, that is present in the synagogue would have recognized. Jewish people are very well steeped and have a deep understanding of their scriptures. And so when he stands up to read this, especially being two of the more prominent scriptures about the coming Messiah, which they were all waiting for and hoping for, they would have recognized this immediately. They would have understood that what Jesus is reading is a prophecy about Messiah. And then we're told he sits down. And what happens when he sits down? It's in the second sentence there. Yeah, everybody's staring at him, right? Why are they staring at him? 
The other way informers say something else, right? They're waiting for the teaching. There's this like sort of pregnant with tension moment when he sits down, he's just read this powerful scripture, and they're waiting for the thing that he's going to say about it. And what does he tell them? Yeah. And so if you're sitting in the synagogue and you've just heard the scripture, you know what it's about. Jesus sits down, you're waiting for what, him, what he's going to teach you for the day, which is, like I said, usually short, but probably not that short. And he comes out with that. What are you thinking? What's your reaction? Yeah, a little shocking, right? I'm sure there's some jaws that hit the floor because he's just told them that in hearing this, this scripture, which is the prophecy of the Messiah, has been fulfilled. So what is he saying? I'm the guy, right? I'm the guy. We're going to dive into what he actually read here for just a second. The first line, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now this in Luke's gospel has just actually happened. The chapter previous in in my Bible, it's actually on the same page, there comes the baptism of Jesus. And we've talked about this a little bit already, but if you remember, John the Baptist comes before Jesus as the forerunner. He's out in the, the desert outside of Jerusalem, baptizing in the Jordan, calling people to repentance. And then Jesus comes and is baptized by John the Baptist. And there's lots of discussion as to why that is, but for those of you who remember that story, what happens in that moment? Yeah. Gwen's my helper today, right? So in the moment when Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water. We're told that the Spirit of God, like a dove, descends upon him, right? So when we read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, we have just read in Luke's gospel that literally the Spirit of the Lord has descended upon him, right? And he has been anointed by that Spirit. So as Jesus is reading what was prophecy from 500 years ago, these things actually are and have taken place. So this first one actually has happened. We know that. His hearers in the synagogue don't necessarily know that. They weren't there, right? This, this happened down by Jerusalem. We're now further north up in the area of the Galilee, right up in Nazareth in his hometown. And so he has been anointed. And what has he been anointed to do? To bring good news. There's that word again. What's that, what's that word? Good news. The gospel, right? Euangelion is the Greek word that we've talked about. He is saying here that he, he has been anointed. He has been filled and anointed by the Spirit in order to bring this good news to whom? The poor. Who are the poor? The people without money, right? That's kind of the definition of poor, right? And so that's very true. But in Jesus' teaching, if you think back or you can reference or remember this, the Sermon on the Mount, we get, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so the truth of the matter is it's both. And so Jesus is very much talking and, and bringing blessings and good news to the poor in spirit, but that often coincides with the poor in reality. There is a truth to the fact that those who are poor materially are much more open to and aware of their spiritual poverty. And as we watch Jesus gather people, the people that he calls, not only his disciples, but the people that start to follow him, that flock to him from, as he goes from city to city. It is often the poor, the outcast, the destitute. We're also told that there are wealthy people, particularly women, who support him. So it's not just the poor. And then after the line from about the good news to the poor, he's sent to proclaim release to the captives. Who are the captives? Captive to what? Sin, Right? Uh, captivity in prophetic literature, prophetic tradition, is always tied to sin and judgment. 
just think about the book of Isaiah itself and what you know about that. First Isaiah, who's giving all of those warnings to Israel before Babylon comes in and invades and destroys the temple and puts them into exile, is warning them to get right with God, to walk away from sin, to be just, to live lives of justice, of love and mercy. Otherwise, they're going to find themselves in captivity because captivity is a direct result of turning your back on God. And we've talked before about the fact that in the first century, despite the fact being returned to the land, despite the fact that they have now in the first century for 300 years had a temple, God has never come back to that temple in the way that they had expected. And so they still understand themselves as living in a kind of exile apart from God and therefore captivity. And so Jesus here, using the lines from Isaiah, promise of the prophet, the promise of the Messiah, says that I'm here to release you from the captivity that you still are experiencing. And then he goes on to say that he's here to recover the sight of the blind. Who are the blind? The people that don't see, right? Um, and, and we know, obviously, again, that he's going to actually recover the sight to literally blind people. But for Jesus in, in his teaching and scripture in general, sight, light, and darkness, light are those that see the truth, to see, uh, you know, we, we hear in, in, in other places, Jesus will say, those who uh, have eyes to see or ears to hear. So seeing is a spiritual reality in Jesus' teaching. And so it is both physical, literal sight to the blind through the miracles that he's going to work, but it's also, of course, a spiritual seeing that he's, he comes to bring. And then he says to let the oppressed go free. That line is the one from Isaiah 58. The rest of this comes from 61. That line doesn't show up. If you go back to 61 and read verses 1 and I think 2, you get the rest of this. But that one shows up in chapter 58. We're going to read that here in just a minute. But that one's relatively obvious, right? The oppressed. First century Israel is certainly oppressed by the Roman Empire. And oppression is not only from the Roman Empire, but again, from evil, from sin, from Satan, from the, the accuser, the oppressor, is, is the evil one himself. And so Jesus is, of course, here to set free those who are being oppressed. And then the last one is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Who knows what the year of the Lord's favor is? Yes, true, correct. It is the Jubilee year. And Drew, do you know what Jubilee is? Yeah, so in, in, the, in the Jewish calendar, there's what's known as the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, Israel was to not plant. The land was to remain fallow. They were allowed, the land was allowed to rejuvenate itself, and so they wouldn't plant crops, they wouldn't effectively work, and they would basically take a year off, and it would allow the, the land to rejuvenate itself. God was promised to, the year before, give them a bumper crop so that they had plenty to get through that sabbatical year. But every seventh sabbatical cycle, so every 49 years, there was what is, what is called the Jubilee. And there's some debate as to whether it happened in year 49 or actually in the next year, in year 50, but that is not pertinent to the conversation. But in the Jubilee year, not only was the land to remain fallow, not be planted, but as Drew said, every bit of property returns to its original owner. So if you, at some point in that 50 years, your family had sold your land to someone else in the Jubilee year, you got it back. And so there are all sorts of uh, rules as to, okay, so if you're going to sell it in like the 40th year, that you sell it for basically a 10-year price. 
because 10 years later, you know you're getting it back. So it's almost like you were renting land rather than selling it. But not only was it property, it was also people. So there was a um, practice in this world that you could sell yourselves into slavery. It's nothing like what we know as chattel slavery in, in the early American years. Um, it was, I can't support myself, and so I am going to become an indentured servant to you. I'm going to serve you. I become part of your household. And there were all sorts of rules that governed how, if someone sold themselves into slavery, you were to treat them as part of your household, not as a slave. But in the Jubilee year, you went free. And so the year of Jubilee is this year of restoration, of letting captives go. All the things that we've just read is what the Jubilee represented. And so when Isaiah is talking about the year of the Lord's favor, what he's talking about is sort of the penultimate Jubilee year when God brings everything back into right relationship with each other and with himself, okay? So all of captivity, all of oppression, all of the things that have gone wrong in the world get put right. That's what happens in the year of the Lord's favor. It was like the Jubilee of Jubilees. And then Jesus sits down after reading all of this, and all of the things that we have just talked about are things that would be back in the back of these hearers' minds. And he says, today, this is fulfilled. Right? This, today, this is, this is coming true. If we skip forward a couple chapters in Luke, there's this moment when John the Baptist, who has been arrested at this point, sends his disciples to Jesus. And for those of you who know that story, what they, why does he send them? He's in prison. He can't come, but he wants to know something. Is he the one? So John's been hearing about these things, and he wants to know from Jesus, are you the one? Are you, what, what Jesus just said. He wants to know for sure. And Jesus responds to his disciples. He says, tell John. But what does he say to tell John? Do you remember? Yeah, tell John what you've seen. He says, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them. And so we see clearly that Jesus understands that those things are accompanying the coming kingdom that when Messiah comes, when kingdom is here, when the, when the jubilee of jubilees, the, Lord, the year of the Lord's favor comes, these are the sorts of things that happen. And everyone sort of knew that because Jesus can give that answer to John. So John would have gotten that response and thought, oh, these things are happening. Messiah must be here, right? This was the justification that he is actually the Messiah. So we have to come face to face, and, and we in a modern post-enlightenment world don't often want to think about this, but we often read these sorts of things, and, and we have done this today as we've talked through this, we interpret these as metaphorical things, right? We've talked about how it's, well, it's poor, but it's poor in spirit, right? And it's captives, but it's captive to sin, right? And it's oppressed, but it's oppressed by the evil one, right? But for the first century, and for Jesus, and for John, and for those people who are awaiting this thing, it is, it is both that, but it is also very real. These are also real, tangible things. It's why Jesus can say to John's disciples, hey, look, this, the blind are seen. The, the literal blind literally now see. The sick are healed. Dead people are raised, right? We live now, post-resurrection, We've, we've referenced this before, but in sort of this in-between stage, right? There is a 
phrase called eschatology, and in Greek, eschaton is the word for the coming time when everything is put to right, right? This is Jesus' return when everything is renewed. We live in this weird in-between sort of half-realized eschatology. So we live after Jesus. These things have happened, but not yet in full. So we look around in our world and we see lots of problems. We see lots of brokenness. We can't look at our world and say, yeah, the year of the Lord's favor has fully realized itself. We are aware of that, right? We know, even in our prayer time, death, pain, suffering, these things still exist. But it's also important to realize that what Jesus has done, what the Messiah does, and what is inaugurating the kingdom is that those things are being put to right. So we live in this time when these things are being fixed and marching towards the time when Jesus will return and it will all be put to right. I'm going to skip back and read the section from Isaiah 58 from which the line of oppressed comes from. And this is, again, third Isaiah speaking to Israel who has now returned from Babylon And he is talking to them here about sort of their true worship and particularly the ways that they fast and the ways that they go about their lives of piousness or piety towards God. And he says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the throngs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own kin. And so Isaiah there is urging Israel to realize, as Isaiah does, all three Isaiahs do over and over, that what God cares for is not necessarily your sacrifices, not your fasting, not your pious behavior. What does God care for? It's a word that starts with J. It's justice. God's justice is what he's after. Now, we hear that word, and in our culture, what does justice mean to you? Fairness, right? Getting what you deserve, right? And there are times and places when people need to get what they deserve. But God's justice is not that. God's justice is tied up with this concept of shalom, which I'm sure you've heard, and which we translate roughly as peace. But shalom is a much broader concept. It involves peace and justice and goodness and putting things right. So that what the Jubilee year was, was a year when things got put right again. What the year of the Lord's favor is, what the coming eschaton is, is the time when things will be put right. And so as Isaiah admonishes the nation of Israel to live just lives, what he says is, Those people are poor and they deserve it, right? Is that what he says? No. Because God's justice is not to look at someone and say, well, you made poor life choices. God's justice is to look at someone and say, you're hurting and you're suffering. And as people of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, the Messiah who puts things right, what is our responsibility? To put things right to feed the poor, to bring the homeless into our own homes, to care for them. Because what Jesus is reading here is not just spiritual and metaphorical. It must also be real and tangible. 
that if we are going to claim to be followers of Jesus, claim to be followers of the Messiah, this is what that means, because this is what Messiah did, what Messiah does, and what the people of the Messiah do. Now, there certainly is room for discussion as to how exactly we need to do that in a healthy way, but what we can't do is just look at the world and say, oh, it's broken, it's terrible, it's getting what it deserves, because that may be our form of justice, but that is not God's justice. And the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross is that we don't get what we deserve. That God loves us, puts us to rights with him, and then calls us to go into the world and help put it to rights. There is some way in which the thing that we do now matters for the future. The church is called to help build this thing. And at some point, Jesus is coming back and it's all going to be fixed. But whatever we're doing now matters, and, and we can get into the theology of that another time, but I'm just going to throw that statement out there for now. We've talked, we talked, I think, last week about how the early church had no real evangelistic strategy, right? But yet they exploded in terms of numbers and growth. Why was that? Because they took this seriously. They understood that the thing that they're supposed to do is to care for and love the world and make things right. And so when people got sick and they got thrown out of their own homes and left in the streets to die, the Christians went and took care of them. When the widows and the orphans had nothing because they don't have the man in their life to make the money and support them, the church went and took them in and cared for them. Hospitals were started by Christians, by the church. Schools were started by Christians and the church. And we, ha we, as a modern, particularly American church, have given that over into the public sphere. But those, th those things came from the church because those are the types of things that the church should be doing. And so the question now is, what should we be doing? So where the, the prior weeks have been sort of building towards this moment, here's the moment, y'all, what are we going to go do? How are we, sitting in Zanesville, Ohio, as 30, 40 people here and another 25 or 30 watching online, how are we going to do the thing that Jesus did and calls us to do here and now? I've got some other questions that I'm going to throw out there to help you think through this. Because I'll tell you right now, uh, we have to think through this, and these are not rhetorical questions. It's fine if you want to think about these things, but I really do want answers to these questions. Uh, because it's going to take all of our input, all of our prayer, all of our thought coming to terms with these questions and the question of how we're going to do this in order to be the church that we've talked about being. So one of the things that as I'm, you know, as I go through even just my, in my own life and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what is it that God wants me to do at this moment or at this time or in this place? One of the, one of the easy questions to ask is simply just what's in front of you? We tend to make this seeking of God's purpose for my life a really complicated, grand question that has all of the meaning in the world for our lives, which it does, but we build it up into this monumental decision that we have to make, when in reality, sometimes all we have to do is open our eyes and look around. So the question is, in your daily routine, in your life, who or what do you see? Who do you come into contact with? Who are your friends? Who are your acquaintances? Who's the guy or the, the woman that you bump into time and time again? Who's in front of you? And is that an opportunity? What do you see when you open your eyes and look around that's broken? That's, that's a pretty easy question, actually, right? And I'm not talking about when you turn on the news 
at night. Maybe if you're turning on Wiz and it's local news. I'm talking about when you're driving through downtown or you're going up Maple Avenue or you're going about your everyday life, what's broken? Because I don't know about you, but where I sit today, I don't have a whole lot to say to Washington to fix the problems. About the only thing that I can do is what we did this morning and Caleb helped us do is to pray about that, which is wonderful. But there are also things right here, right now that we can actually do. And the question is, what do you see that's broken? Think about what resources you have at your disposal. Sometimes the answer is just in the things that you have. And this, this leads to another conversation which we're gonna, we will be having, that everything you have belongs to God. Right? That's, a, that's a pretty important understanding. Everything you have is a kingdom resource and it belongs to God. And sometimes what you need to do is determined by looking around and saying, oh, I've got this and here's how I can use it. And maybe dollars, it may be a thing. Maybe your home, maybe you need to open up your home and have someone live with you. I know lots of people have done that. Uh, I've done that. My wife and I have done that at, at times. Right? That can be a powerful thing. So, so what are your resources? The other question is, wh- who can you gather? Right? If, we're, if we want to talk about, and this can be a conversation about making a small group, or it can just be, who do you have influence over? And think back a few weeks when we talked about, like, you remember that sort of almost line that we had that was like M1, M2, M3, and we talked about the people that are like us and less like us. A lot of times this is like, okay, so who are the people that are kind of like you, have common interests in you? Can you start a thing around that? I don't know what that is. For me, I've been thinking about, I was, I've been a professional photographer for over a decade. I'm thinking about just doing like photo walks and like inviting people and teaching them about photography. Few people show up for that. It's a resource I have. I've got cameras laying around. Why not do it? What's that thing for you? We all have those sorts of things. And then the, here's the big question. What breaks your heart? Right, that was a question that struck me the first time I ever heard that. When you're looking around and you're thinking about either your resources or what's in front of you, or you just open your eyes as you're driving around or get out of your car and take a walk, what breaks your heart? If we are in a place where we are in tune with God, if we approach that question prayerfully, what ends up happening is what breaks your heart is the thing that breaks God's heart. And I'm in ministry because I asked that question and what I found breaking my heart were at the time, 19, 20, 20 20-somethings, even in the 30s, who had spent time in church who had been abused spiritually, who had been taught things that were just patently false because somebody wanted to control them, Uh, people who had had bad or awful experiences in church and had rejected God because they had been mistreated. I don't know what breaks your heart, but that's the one that gets me. And it was in response to that that I started this whole process that has brought me here today. What motivates me is making sure that you all and the world know who God and Jesus really are. Do you know that Jesus actually loves you? Do you know that God loves you? That he has, I don't know actually if he has some great plan for your life, but I know he has a plan and you have a part in it to play. That there's a beautiful story and you're called into it. And it gives life meaning and purpose beyond any other that you could fathom. And I want people to know that and to feel that. And is it easy? Absolutely not. The promise is not an easy life free from trouble. But that's what got me here. 
That's what, when I'm honest and prayerful with God, what wrecks me is to know that there are people suffering at times at the hands of the church. And that's, you talk about injustice. <laughs> what an injustice that the church itself has mistreated people to the point that they've turned their back on God. The question I have for you is what breaks your heart? Maybe it's kids that don't have meals that go hungry. As we're talking about going back to school or not going back to school in the fall, one of the real reasons we would need kids to go back to school is because a lot of kids don't get breakfast and they don't get lunch and they're reliant upon the schools for that. I don't know what's going to happen in a month. Maybe they don't go and maybe it's time for us to step up in some way. I don't know. We have to figure that out. But there are real problems in our world and God has put one or more of those problems on your heart. I promise it. If you would just take the moment to pray about it and listen to him and to look around. We all bear his image. And in a world where there is pain and suffering, if we can't open our eyes and acknowledge that we hurt because someone else hurts, then we have hardened our heart and we, and we need to repent of that. And so in the coming weeks, I'm going to reissue this challenge. I want answers to these questions. We need to think about, pray about, and provide answers. Last week, we talked about the sort of fivefold ministry, and I said, hey, I want to hear from you which place you fit. And as of yet, I've not heard from anybody, which is okay. This is a much more tangible question. This is a question I really do want an answer from. So I encourage you, please pray about it, think about it, talk about it with your family and your friends. Open your eyes this week as you're driving around. Think about the things that, and the people that you come into contact with, and the things that you see. Where is God saying, here, here's a problem. Here is oppression. Here is injustice. Here is poverty of, what, or one, of one type or another. And this is where I need you. It's answering that question that's going to give our, our lives purpose as individuals and our church. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good God that you are. We thank you that you have sent your Son to the world. We thank you that his mission and his purpose as Messiah is all the things that Isaiah and our other prophets had written about, that because he has come, oppression is being relieved, justice is being found and brought into existence. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you have called us into that story, that we are the recipients of your love and your mercy, that we have been set free. And we ask, God, that you would provide us with the clarity, the discernment, and the understanding to know, in turn, now, how it is that we are to go about bringing that justice to this world. We ask that you would be with us in this coming week as we ponder those questions, as we pray about those questions. We ask that you would give us clarity as individuals and as a church. In your son's name we pray, and in the power of the Spirit. Amen.